Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Zoya Samin, and today I'll be talking with historian Arunima Datta about her exciting new book, Waiting on Empire, a history of Indian traveling ayahs in Britain that has recently been published by Oxford University Press. Arunima Datta is an assistant professor at the Department of History at the University of North Texas. She is the author of the multiple award-winning book, Fleeting Agencies, A Social History of Indian Guli Women in British Malaya that was published in 2021. She serves as an associate editor of Gender and History, Britain and the World, and as the associate review editor of the American Historical Review. Her works have appeared in several scholarly journals, public history journals and magazines, and on BBC4. Welcome, Arunima, to the podcast. Um, Arunima, I think we can perhaps even get started with how the second book comes out of the first book, because you actually did a podcast with New Books Network a couple of years back about that first book. And I think there you were asked various questions about how your biographical background sort of leads into this history of migration and mobility. We add caregiving to that interest in this book. So I suppose we could just start out with talking about how Waiting on Empire continues the intellectual project that you began with fleeting agencies. Certainly feel free to reflect on how your personal background shapes the interests in that history. And um, since most of our listeners might not be familiar with the word ayah, perhaps you could also uh, get into the meanings of that word. And obviously it translates most closely with the English word nanny, but there's much more to it. So those are a few things I think that we can get started with. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's an honor. Um, and to answer your question, um, as a historian, I focus on the transnational histories of South Asian migrants within the British Empire and also in Britain, which is an extension of the British Empire Empire at home, right? Um, so through my research, I have basically focused on South Asian migrant communities 
and how their mobility transforms our understandings of Asia's colonial history, but also reveals lesser known histories of British Empire, but also Britain itself. And in doing so, I try to stretch the compass of um, definitional boundaries of British Empire and also Asian history. And by Asian history, I mean primarily South Asian and Southeast Asian history. So, uh, In my previous work on fleeting agencies, I focused mainly on South Asian women migrating to Southeast Asia and uh, looking at inter-Asian mobilities and histories uh, within the British Empire context. While working on that project, I came across coolie women, so indentured servants and um, more, right? how they were reaching a certain age and then being retired from the plantation system because they were not thought to be um, particularly efficient workers uh, because of various aging um, problems, be it eyesight or um, limbs not working properly and this these are these are words that the labor department uses to record their age and functioning capacities so initially i was thinking they were being retired from work and i was looking for what they were doing after retiring but i stumbled upon a record of um a coolie woman retiring and then taken in by a planter of that estate to give care for his children and um, his wife. So she, this coolie woman, basically transitioned from a plantation worker to a caregiving worker, uh, an aya, a word that comes from the Portuguese word ayo, which means caregiver. Um, and she was not only caregiving, but was also the maid, the the cook um, in that household. Now, eventually, that family went on home leave to Britain and decided to take the Aya with them to help them during the journey um, from Malaysia to Britain. And I thought, this is interesting. Let's see where this ends. Um, And so when I traced that journey, I ended up finding hundreds of women basically being traveling ayahs. And so traveling nannies, traveling servants is what the ayah word would loosely translate to. But there was more to it. During the passage, they became caregivers, nannies, tutors also. Um, Different ayahs, of course, had different um, assignments for their care. But they were also cooking, they were doing the laundry, they were were just everything in one, right? So um, it was a weird... It was a weird way where their... um, caregiving transition to many more activities, which we would not necessarily associate with the term Aya. Um, And that 
intrigued me and I got interested in this occupation, which was clearly there, migrant care workers um, in the 19th century and 20th century, which uh, I had not read about and I had not seen. So the second book really came out of the first book where I saw plantation women's labor being recycled into caregiving labor when they reached a particular age. But that being said, um, it's not that only older women entered this job. We find Ayas as as young as 10, as young as 12 years old, um, who were who were accompanying um, families on their um journeys, long journeys between Asia and Britain. No, that's all really helpful and really fascinating. I I like that um, in the, I think the preface of the book, you mention the story of an older um, a, a woman who worked on a plantation in British Malaya, who might have been, and, and sort of you imagined, okay, like her hands might have been too worn out to do the work on the plantation, like tapping the rubber trees. And then you sort of thought about this woman and how her hands would then be used for the service of caregiving, sort of this much more humanizing activity and so on. And I think, so that's a really, I think, good way to think about how Waiting on Empire really does come out of fleeting agencies, but also in terms of how the migrating Indian women, the laboring women who were going to the plantations in in um, Malaysia, then also sort of had these other parts of migration to Britain and how sort of that sort of, this is really is in um, not just an empire in Asia story, but it's an empire in Asia and Britain story and how Britain is informed by its empire in Asia. And so I think in that way, it one speaks to this sort of new imperial history, it sort of advances it in many ways, but also is really trying to think about the empire, like sort of holistically as well. Um, you could perhaps sort of, I think, reflect on that a bit more in terms of um, how even your um, passage through the archives is reflective of that in terms of how you're following one source from one archive in India to Kuala Lumpur to, um, you know, and perhaps also in Singapore and then in Britain as well. Um, you know, that's, I guess, perhaps a question about how the sources across both books speak to each other. And then also, you know, how how was your second book different from the first book in terms of just how you were able to conceive of it? You know, was it a lot more sort of top down because you sort of have this big idea about traveling ayahs and you can do, and this theme of waiting is operative throughout. So I guess it's just a, uh, an opportunity to reflect a bit a bit more on that. Yeah, so when I was looking at the first book, it was focusing on specific areas and I wasn't necessarily looking at world history. But uh, when I embarked on this journey um, with my second book, along with these incredible women, um, the traveling ayahs, I realized that my work was joining the efforts of some of the other historians especially Antoinette Burton, Laura Tabili, Sumita Mukherjee, um, who are currently looking at world history from bottom up and revisioning world history, not from the lens of the flows of the empire, but rather approaching it from a lens that acknowledges the multi-directional flow of history, right? So it it joins... Um, in many ways, this book joins and kind of broadens... Um, 
the work I did in the first book to democratize the migrant labor history, uh, but also allows us to see that world history can be done by following labor movements and not necessarily colonial powers and colonial movements, colonizations. Um, so it, it definitely kind of uh, also helps us understand that women in their own right were moving and were contributing to colonial labor migrant histories, which is a field that still overwhelmingly focuses on men's history, right? So um, in, in many ways, it is a continuation of what I started out doing in fleeting agencies, but it kind of broadens the aspect, broadens the horizon. Um, and a lot of the things that I um, found in the archives in the fleeting agencies actually trained me to look at archives in a particular way. So for instance, in the fleeting agencies, I was looking at labor department records. I was looking at criminal records. I was looking at um, labor planters' diaries, right? Um, so of course, I went into the archives with that with that understanding that, okay, let me look at labor department reports or similar uh, records for the ayahs. And while I went into the archives thinking about that, it did not return much, right? Because the, this was a different kind of labor. This was not so much of a public-facing labor. This was, quote-unquote, what you know uh, Victorians would call very homely labor, private labor. Um, although, in, in effect, they were not necessarily so private because um, these incredible women were basically critical to the resilience of the imperial rule as it allowed colonizers to maintain families despite the global mobility. So in many ways, they were moving in and out of public and private spaces. However, because they were not categorized as public space labor, their records were not there in labor department reports. So I had to um, readjust and relearn uh, navigating archives to find these uh, women and their stories. So um, I had to unlearn things I had learned from the first project and relearn the the skills of um, going into archives and looking for these women in passage slips, in um, passports, in um, sound archives, in images, postcards, um, scrapbooks written uh, by the charges that uh, they were taking care of, various letters um, and uh, various kinds of criminal records. So I think um, the one thing that is very similar uh, between Waiting on Empire and Fleeting Agencies is that um, these women became hyper-visible to the empire when they were doing something wrong so or, or when something went wrong. So uh, that's the one thing that helped me from Fleeting Agencies' experience to look for those criminal records um, to see what went wrong, 
what and in what circumstances were these women, their individual uh, identity and their labor becoming hyper visible for the empire? Um, that's actually the last bit that you said in terms of when someone becomes emerges in, in the archive, they emerge in relation to some kind of trouble that they might be in in relation to in, in relation to perhaps legal or, you know, other social structures. And I think that's really interesting because on the one hand, it may give us a skewed impression of a group of people if they're only emerging in, in records in this particular way, but it will give you a sense um, of their agency and resilience because if they've emerged in that respect, it's because they're saying something that's also causing a bit of a bit of a bit of trouble, a bit of reaction and so on. So I'll ask you a bit about um, you know, in this way, how do you read these sources against the grain to recover the Aya's agency? And if, while reflecting on that, I also, because you said something about how labor history, and now there are sort of many strands, historiographical strands. Um, there's sort of the, um, you know, mobility and migration and empire strand and writing that from below, um, you know, this bottom-up history of the British Empire. But there's such a well-developed um, literature on labor history, specifically in South Asia, and that's heavily skewed towards laboring men. Um, and, and and while this book is not looking at ayahs who work in India, it's looking at ayahs who travel to Britain, there still is a South Asian labor history as well that is actually writing women back um, into, into that history. So I suppose that I've asked you sort of two, I, I've said two different things, but there's, uh, I think, a historiographical question there. And then you can also tell us about sort of the, the method in terms of reading the sources. Yeah. Um, so one thing, and as you said, there is a lot of work done on ayahs in India serving colonial families. Um, but I think what has been an issue in the field of South Asian history is that it is a very inward-looking field. It looks at labor and people within these imagined boundaries of South Asia. Um, it, it, it doesn't always accept the histories of people going out um, of, of those geographical locations um, who are still South Asians and who are denied um, citizenship in, in terms of historical citizenship in other uh, places that they are going but they also end up not getting recognition in the field. So they are basically easily silenced as historical subjects. Um, so I think the, the, the importance of following the history of traveling ayahs or coolie women who went out of the um, South Asian geographical location is that it allows us to... Um, look at South Asian history both inward and outward at the same time and make connections. Um, and through those connections, it, it can really um, allow us to revisit a lot of um, assumptions that were made in terms of labor histories, especially in South Asia. For instance, um, we we have been talking about uh, Laskars. We have been talking about uh, Sepoys. We have been talking about Indian coolie men. But why is it that we are only starting to learn about traveling ayahs and coolie women, right? Um, so so that that uh, gender lens definitely helps us democratize the field, um, both 
in South Asia, but also in the empire. So it kind of makes a connection that um, allows us to marry British empire history, South Asian history, British history into one space and look at the connections and uh, do larger histories from there. Absolutely. And one of the things I liked that you talked about in your book with respect to to sources was that when you were able to... um, trace the um, locales of ayahs in Britain, um, I suspect maybe specifically in in London, Um, you wanted to walk in those spaces, you wanted to inhabit those spaces and try and see, okay, what would this woman have seen? How would she have sort of recognized this uh, space? And sort of this again takes us to one, how the sources are living with you, the historian, and how that's making you think about this history yeah, as well. And, and um, you know, I am a big fan of Carolyn Seatman's work and uh, what she talks about, you know, what she says about archive fever was something very real as a historian that I've you know, experienced, especially in this project. Um, of course, I spent sleepless nights, um, even after a full day of research in the British Library, the National Archives, the Army Museum. Um, I felt lost several times because the files were not complete. Uh, the voices, the stories of the ayahs were only very fleeting, right? They were very fleetingly present in the documents. And the most horrific times were ones where I would order a file and the file would come back uh, with um, a label saying damaged, lost, or basically you could see the file was incomplete. It suddenly ends in the middle of a sentence and then you are left with this haunting experience. What next? Right. So I become a subject of my own kind of um, study. I wait for to know what's coming next. And, and, and the thing is, there is no way of knowing. Right. Because they, there is that erasure. Uh, but that allowed me to also because of the space I was in the British Library, the archives that I was looking at was in Britain, where these ayahs were coming to. Um, so I wanted to see uh what the bodily experience, what the emotional experience might have been, right? And of course, I'm talking from a different time and space and um, experience. But when I would see that an ayah had uh, walked from the Docklands to the ayah home, I wondered what that experience would have been. Of course, the archives are not saying that, but what would a physical experience of that be, for an ayah. So I I walked those streets um, to see how long that walk was, how how difficult was that walk, um, especially knowing that you don't know where you're going or when you can go back home um, after being abandoned uh, in the Docklands by your employers. Those things, of course, I can't embody. I just cannot replicate. But I could do the physical walk. Um, and I spent hours around the building, which used to be Aya's home, which is still there and is a council flat uh, now. Um, and then, of course, I went to the London City Mission where they would have gone for their Sunday, uh, uh, you know, um, sessions, uh, choirs and more. So, of course, there is a lot of erasure, but kind of 
this immersive experience allowed me um, to get a little bit more closer to these women that I was studying who remained so far from me in 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 terms of time and space. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. And, you know, waiting is the category that kind of marries the structure of the book. And then there, it's also a category that you're sitting with, you know, a historian sort of waiting for stuff for, for, for the narrative or for the story to, to, you know, cohere in front of you and so on. So I guess that's a good, I think, way to get into the, the category of waiting in, in connection to the book, obviously. It, the idea of waiting and you talk about this in the introduction in relation to how historians have thought about it and how you're thinking about it and it actually shapes the chapter structure of of the book right different kinds of waiting ayas waiting for the steamship in india waiting for you know some opportunity to leave the shores um waiting for employment in britain waiting to be able to to leave britain in cases of abandonment as you just mentioned so there are all these experiences of waiting that these women are going through and there's all there's a sense in which it's just what's literally happening to these women at different stages, but there's also sort of an abstract way in which you're thinking about waiting as well. And 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 one thing you note that I think is is good to highlight as well is that you know there's a passive sense that histor- there's a a way in which historians have thought of waiting as a passive thing. It's something that's just happening, but you try to turn that on its head and say actually this is a space for to be active for these women because it's precisely when they're waiting that they have to act in order to to combat that waiting. So I guess we can have a, a at this point, you know, a more open open-ended conversation about one waiting as framing the structure and the argument that the book is 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 putting forward and just um some ways in which this is both something that's happening to the women like in real time and something more abstract that you're working with as a historian. Yeah, so in this book what I've tried to do is take my readers on a journey through the everyday lives of the traveling ayahs who waited on colonial families waiting as a service, but also who were made to wait because of the circumstances in which they arrived in Britain or in which they stayed on in Britain. And um, one, as you mentioned, one of the principal historical objectives of the book is to revision this historical understanding of waiting. uh, Because waiting is something that connects us with the with the historical subjects we study from the past waiting is you know you, you could say waiting is one of the most recurrent recurrent um recurring whatever you say <laughs> universal exper- experiences right from that fisherwoman waiting on the hook uh for her prey to kind of be caught to the 21st century of knowledge worker waiting for that crucial email uh, But it's that experience of waiting that often gets ignored and marginalized, especially um, in historical studies, but also in mainly in historical studies in the migration um, field. Right. Uh, So the main focus of the works that have appeared in migration histories focusing on waiting have usually uh, focused on the left behind relations, people who are waiting for people to come back, the migrants to come back, or um, if waiting has been seen in terms of an experience of the migrants, then it is seen as stolen time or framed as uh, a feeling of failure or feeling of being stuck um, in a passive state. So it has overlooked the power dynamics, uh, which 
basically determine who waits on whom and uh, in what conditions these waiting happened. Um, so while my study, of course, appreciates the liminality of waiting and being stuck in the space of waiting, it kind of uses the stories of these incredible women to show that the zone of waiting was never a space of resignation or resigned acceptance for these women. Rather, it became a space of constant striving and struggle through emotions, through politics, through materials, through social bargaining and more. So um, I try to emphasize in the book that waiting is, after all, a verb, right? And it is time that we emphasize on the doing part of the uh, waiting rather than the not doing part of the waiting, which is informed by the capitalist understanding of waiting is basically waste of time. Um, So in framing waiting as an active space and experience, um, I actually found um, allies in and inspirations from amazing scholarly works in gender and sexuality histories. For instance, Ishita Pandey's work um, in the context of marriage and um, uh, waiting to, you know, in colonial context, waiting to come of age um, as a as an active training uh, for maturity to come to age to basically be um, legally able to marry. Um, Or even Victoria Pitts-Taylor's work, who basically looks at waiting as a common experience um, in the gender transition process, wherein patients are put on wait lists and experiences um, uh, a number of medical delays while being on that wait list, and yet how they, in that space of waiting, create a community of voice and potential movement to attract support to their cause and their emotions. And also, for instance, Stacey Holman's work, um, who explores waiting as a manufactured uh, process um, for queer couples who are trying to adopt. Um, and in that space of waiting, the queer, the queer couples are um, trying to become more acceptable, quote-unquote, acceptable families um, in the eyes of those who are, um, you know, who, who have the power to grant them that adoption. So um, drawing inspiration from these works, um, I use this kind of broader sense of waiting to study... Um, how traveling ayahs were waiting. And what I found soon enough was that traveling ayahs were um, in similar ways uh, showing full preparedness and endurance in waiting. Um, Some actively even chose to wait because that gave them economical gains. Um, And some actively chose to wait because they could train to become better traveling ayahs to um, uh, be able to demand better wages, right? So they were skillfully negotiating waiting. And in 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 those stories, through those chapters, what we find is waiting for the traveling ayahs therefore becomes a very busy space, a space of planning, a space of negotiation, a zone of activity and a zone of uh, possibilities, um, and, and in many ways, a zone of becoming, becoming active agents and visible agents of the empire. 
that's a really, I think, fantastic way to see how the category of waiting speaks to all these different um, subfields within history and how that's informed um, informed your idea as well. Um, I wanted to, I guess, then also take a passage through the waiting, perhaps through the eyes of even like one ayah. So we start obviously with the recruitment process in India itself, and 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 um, and and that's again there could be various motivations and. Um, um, modes of that taking place and so so let's talk a bit about that why is it, why would an indian woman be motivated to travel to britain to partake in the work of being a, a, a caregiver or an ayah yeah so uh, there is no one answer why the traveling ayahs became traveling ayahs there are several reasons and that is what it makes it even more interesting for us as historians and especially historians of women's history. Um, Some traveled because it was economically sensible. Um, They they were getting a lot of money. A lot is subjective, so quote-unquote a lot, right? Um, So there are ayahs like um, Carolyn Pereira who refused to be an ayah in India but um, was only signing up for traveling Aya jobs uh, because that gave her more money and that was also allowing her to do makeshift business, uh, you know, individual kind of small scale business transactions when she was in uh, Britain. Uh, So uh, there were several reasons, but there were also ayahs who were wanting to escape certain kinds of social taboo attached to their demographic identities, uh, being widows or being uh, spinsters or being wives um, who didn't have children, right? Uh, Motherless wives, um, as they were categorized in the archives. Um, And, you know, you might think, well, why not then just leave India and go away? Probably they weren't sure and they didn't find uh, those those options um, sometimes, but I think even those momentary breaks from uh, an experience of social taboo was enough for them because we find we find traveling ayahs who have done this journey, which before the opening of the Suez Canal would have lasted six to seven months, and there were ayahs who were doing it more than fifty times, which shows that they would have spent a considerable amount of time on ships, on journeys, uh, dealing with seasickness and so many other challenges, right? And that shows an attachment. And of course, while we cannot have a definite answer why they they did this, but these are possible answers, right? They, they would have enjoyed it for economic reasons or personal reasons or social reasons um, as escape moments of escape. Um, there were also ayahs who were duped into it. Uh, they were promised to um, be given a better life in Britain. They were promised to be paid back a passage and given substantial wages if they traveled with the employers. Um, and of course, upon reaching Britain, those promises were broken. Um, and 
so so there are various reasons why traveling ayahs um, traveled. And in fact, there were two cases, at least two cases, where I found the traveling ayahs embarked on a journey without any kind of um, demographic information of whether they were married or not. They were actually... Uh, one of them at least was categorized as a single woman. And it was found that she was uh, expecting on board and she gives birth to a child. And so was she escaping uh, social taboo of being a single woman, but with a child? Uh, or was she just traveling knowing that we don't know but it, it is those questions that become important um, especially for our field of women's history no absolutely and I think I think that's a really interesting anecdote that you referenced because um, it indicates that sort of the um, this mobility of caregiving is being repurposed by women who are not interested in being caregivers to again as you say escape taboos um, or perhaps just escape difficult situations um I, I I want to actually also note that um, within the book you collate a lot of data where you actually try to show how many women are traveling as ayahs or at least who emerge in the records as traveling and you show that across sort of um, even even the early 19th century and then the mid 20th century and there's a huge spike in the late 19th century and so we also can can gather um, that there is an increased need for this labor um, uh, that is being generated by the the sort of the not just the the growth of the British Empire but the ways in which it seeks to understand itself in relation to those it governs right the need is for uh, the labor of the subjects to attend to attend to um, to the British. Um, and there, that there's an interesting part there also um, that you mentioned that some of these women are being duped because I think it's in chapter one where you also want to think of the movement of ayahs in, in, in relation to this, this vast literature on the traffic in women in the British Empire as well. And obviously there, there's, there's, there's so much work done on how women being duped to cross borders for work that they are unaware that they're going to be asked to do and so on. So I also think it's really interesting to Again, that you know, writing this idea of traffic from below and showing how complex it is—it's not sort of a straightforward history of women sort of being being duped and sort of having their agency taken from them. Um, so I think that's also quite quite interesting. Um, and in the book, you mention the the fact that most of the Indian women who are traveling are either Hindu or Christian. Could you could you perhaps say a, a word or two about about that about why it seems that it's, it's these two religions that are um, reflecting the women that are that are traveling. Yeah, so I would, I mean, again, these are these are things that we get gather from the archives. So I basically made those charts of religious identities, uh, marital identities, um, age um, chart, and everything uh, based on the data I was getting from passage slips and passports, and. Uh, a lot of the times, um, what I was seeing, a, a majority of the ayahs were mainly Christian converts, right? Um, and probably the, the, the conclusion that kind of um, the archives allows us to suggest is that probably there was a preference for converted um, women, to take them as ayahs in such close proximity in intimate spaces. Um, 
because they were exposed to or they were thought to be aware of certain Christian standards that uh, the employers would have felt comfortable with. And we have to bear in mind, some of the times the families were not uh, traveling, right? It was an ayah traveling with a child or traveling with two children from the same family, right? So, and there is that element of who do we trust? And probably there that having that religious connection, although, of course, the element of race made them um, skeptic employers of the ayahs, um, there would have been an elevated uh, trust factor because of religious um, familiarity, or, or so to speak. Um, Hindus, because a lot of the ayahs who were in-house in India and who were asked to travel with them, uh, majority of the the service givers in India happen to be Hindus, right? So um, we get to see that. Uh, so most likely those, it, it is not surprising that those two groups, religious groups, were the majority of the ayahs that we encounter in the archives. But that being said, we also find uh, Muslim ayahs traveling. And one of my favorite um, historical heroes in this book is Haliman Ayah, right? And of course, her last name is taken away um, in, in the various ways that the empire kind of dehumanizes or erases our identities in the archives. But Haliman um, is a Pardanashin uh, lady, and uh, it she was traveling when passports required pictures, and she basically resisted being, you know, photographed. Right, and if you if you think of that today, no passport agency or no no country would allow that. You would have to be photographed, right? But it, it's it's how she stood up for her religion, for her identity, um, and basically made the empire bend to her expectations of travel or her, her, her ideas of travel and what a document would look like. So, um, and it kind of says like Pardanashin refused to, you know, be photographed. Um, so, um, it's not that only Hindu or Christian women did. Yes, they are majority, but they were also uh, uh, also uh, Muslim women. And also another thing that I have to point out there is that a lot of women were uh, who had English names but were classified as Hindu. And this is the problem of the way they were archived, right? Um, there is there is something wrong with the way they have been archived. Did they change? Uh, were they Christians to begin with? And then they changed to Hindu religion when they got married and hence the archive, you know, uh, the passports say that they were Hindu women. We don't know, but there are there are these loopholes of the archives, which I which I um, kind of bring out in the profile section that there was this carelessness um, in the way these women were uh, documented, which kind of also um, messes with our understanding of. Uh, uh, and and as as responsible historians, we need to be open about those. So I am very open that these are the the conclusions that I'm making from these archives, which uh, 
have their own limitations. I like that you mentioned Halima and Aya's story. And actually, uh, the it's really interesting because you have the archive of the passport photographs and the biographies that you're reading out of that information. And it's true that in her, there's, whereas the image in most of the cases is sort of offering this humanity, otherwise that is really difficult to encounter in, in archives. In her case, the absence of an image is doing that because shows it shows you that she would have sort of she like protected her right to not be seen in through a photograph and it so it does say but then she lady no photograph so I, and I think that's a really good point that you're uh, raising there and I should note that we will talk about that uh, photo archive because you've chosen you've written about it elsewhere um, as a historical argument but you choose to make it an archive in the book and, and the uses of that but uh, continuing with this theme of uh, sort of waiting and going through the empire one of your chapters is entirely about um, waiting with respect to Ayas being abandoned, abused, or sort of taken, you know, completely uh, taken for granted as they reach Britain, and how you uh, choose to actually read um, the experiences of these women where it might appear in the archives in the form of pitying them. You actually want to turn what a colonial official might think um, as reason to pity someone as a way to see it. No, this is someone being passionate and expressive and exercising their ability to convey um, to convey their feelings in a moment. And you turn that back on its head into an act of agency. So I guess let's talk about that chapter because it's sort of, again, it's reading creative resilience into the experience of waiting uh, and, ab- and abandonment. It's the chapter on, on emotions, right? And I, it was one of my favorite and one of the most difficult chapters also to write for me because, I mean, I have that whole emotional lexicon table in that in that chapter, right, where I'm uh, picking all the words of emotions. But it was very emotional for me, too, as a historian, because um, I was, and I know we need to be very, (laughs) history expects us to be objective, but we are also subjects, right, of of what we are reading, and we remain moved. So um, in that chapter, I was constantly coming across these pleas of ayas to the india office in um asking for aid to to help them go back and when the india office was not responding they were basically uh, getting a hold of anyone they could in their social space that they were coming across, be it a passerby, be it a police, be it a work house person or the ayas home. And um it it moved me and it made me very emotional. Um, uh, and it was weird because, and, and for that, when I was experiencing those, I paused for a moment and I was like, I am from a different space. I am in a different space in a different uh, time period. And of course, with, you know, all these privileges that we have as uh you know, educated migrant women that we are, right? Not uh, unacknowledging. I, I don't want to unacknowledge the privileges that we had have compared to these ayahs. But even with those differences and the difference in space and time, these women were able to communicate their emotions to me so far removed from them. And I was moved. So what were they doing to to these uh, passerbys, right? Um, and so I took on 
a creative reading of the archives um, and, and tried to take the words that they used in their pleas, which made the passerbys and their audience feel pity or feel sad. And it, it was remarkable because if you look in the 19th and 20th century histories of Britain, clearly there is a racial gap, right? Um, and, and there is the, the uh, us versus them very evident, and especially with class and race intersecting in different ways, different complex ways. But they were able to use those words of emotions they were feeling to create a bridge, they carefully chose words that would resonate with the passerbys. They chose words like home. They chose words like uh, nursing a two-year-old, right? Uh, that sh- they were not able to do because they were coming to Britain, understanding they would go back within a month's time, but it had been two years and the child had grown two years by then and she was not able to nurse, for instance, right? Um, so it is not that they were pitiful, but they were conveying emotions, which they felt, but also they knew they would be able to uh, relate or create a bridge of understanding with people who did not look like them, did not culturally belong to the same um, identities, right? So I kind of use those words, which would have been probably uh, ignored in colonial discourses as, oh, pitiful, whatever, right? Um, And I flip it uh, to use it to show uh, compassion and basically see how, uh, you know, they, they were strategically, it's not that they were not feeling those emotions, they were feeling those emotions, but they were strategically conveying them as active agents in that liminal space of waiting. Um, so I, I, I truly believe that, uh, looking at those emotions, not in a way of rejecting them as emotional uh, subjects in the archives, but seeing the thought, the real emotions and the way they communicated it um, allows us to, you know, understand um, how how they successfully remained in that space, communicated in that space, but also later for us remained in the archives when the archives would have tried to erase their identity and voices. I think that's all really well said. And what you're saying also resonates with me because it's it's quite, um, when when colonial discourse, despite its efforts, is unable to erase the agency of women, and that's coming through to us as historians in the 21st century, there is a clear weight to that agency that it's being conveyed to us after so long, and you can't actually help but feel moved by that, moved by uh, moved by the fact that what someone has tried to erase persists and perseveres despite those attempts, and that tells us something about the person who expressed the, the, the sort of the emotion or the or the uh, statement in the first place. And I actually want to quickly go to that table that you uh, mentioned because you do actually compile sort of the names of women and sort of um, the emotions that you encounter that they're expressing. But I also want to perhaps give a sense of what abandonment actually looked like. Um, you know, in some cases, this is, is so some de- you have a, um, a column that sort of details about the discharge of, of, of um, an ayah in Britain. And so, for example, you might have 
um, Begamaya, who in 1862 was abandoned in Britain without the promised wages and return passage ticket. I mean, essentially, you, you, you're in a completely different um, country. You are so far away from home. You have no money. You have no place to go. And here's all, here's where I think sort of these these homes for Ayas also start playing a role. In another entry, you talk about Gunda Bai Aya, who's discharged without agreed wages and return passages, and the employer actually takes her to a home for Ayas in Manchester. This is in 1908. So perhaps you could also tell us how these experiences of abandonment are then creating these spaces of solidarity between these laboring Indian women in Britain as well um and this is something that uh really amazed me um which doesn't become very evident in the archives but clearly we can understand you know with the way they were being housed in the aya home or they were uh getting off the ship at the same time um in the docklands there was communication in fact, in some of the some of the cases, the ayahs basically talk about them hearing stories of these traveling ayahs succeeding in this way or this negotiation. So clearly, they were they were communicating and there was a network. But what is more really you know um, interesting about that is they were creating an archive of their own. Of course, they were not writing it, but they, through word of mouth, through memory, they were creating an archive of how did waiting look like for this ayah in this year, and how can we negotiate for the same or negotiate better? And also in the space of the ayah home, they were being housed for weeks, for months, and sometimes for years. And clearly there was an understanding and passing off information from one ayah to the other um, of how they should be negotiating, what kind of advertisements uh, they should be uh, pressurizing the ayah home to put out about them because the ayah home, you know, um, in on the face of it looks like a humanitarian charitable institution. Clearly it was not because it was charging for lodging for the ayahs, um, but it was also functioning as a labor break, brokering um, institution. So they were putting out advertisements. So uh, what, what made an ayah desirable, right? Those kind of words, those kinds of flaunting of certain capacities, um, would have come out of those communications and networks that were created in these spaces within the empire's, um, you know, uh, heart of the empire in Britain. Absolutely. And I want to, I think, move from there to perhaps also getting into the broader stakes of the of the project as a whole. And one way in which you sort of do that is... Um, you make this choice to include a photo archive at the end, and it's and I and I want to note that this is not a small part of the book. These are the, these are 123 entries of passport photos or passport entries of women who traveled uh, for the purposes of caregiving as Aya, sometimes, you know, via th- um, for other forms of labor as well. And in each case, there's sort of the image that you can find. And in some cases, the you know, the absence of an image, but in most cases, there's an image and then there's a name and sort of all this biographical information where someone is born the ways, you know, and, and they come to us in an archive because they have to cross a border, right? And they need a passport to cross that border. So obviously the 
nobility that they'll be engaging in via that via that passport is also talked about. But this is something that you actually are sort of in a way giving to your, the readers of your book. Sort of people can sort of look at this archive and write new things with it, think new things about it. And so I want to ask you one: What is the motivation behind having that archive be part of this book? And how can we read sort of your understanding of the stakes of, of the project through this photo archive? Because so much of what you're doing in this book is, I want to humanize these women. I want my reader to come away knowing, believing, and having compassion for these women through their humanity, right? So let's talk a bit about that. Yeah, so the profile section, um, I went back and forth a lot before deciding on the profile section. Um, As historians, we know, we privilege certain cases in chapters that we write. We we choose cases which help us, you know, uh, put forward the, the, the story that we are telling, right? But there are other cases similar to that that we either footnote about or sometimes don't even include because we don't have much information about those cases. Um, I... I came to this decision of including the profiles because there were several, as you see, 120, more than 120 such cases who did not always make it into the, the chapters. But in no way was their story any less important than the stories that I was telling in the, in the chapters. So it came out of a motivation that I should not recreate the erasure that the archive creates. So um, it came from a very, uh, you know, uh, selfish motivation that I need to be able to sleep at night knowing that I did not erase them from my story. So how do I fit them in? And so I fit them in in the profile section. And it is not just replicating the passport. I actually, I have spent uh, probably one month for every every <laughs> ayah or, or something similar, like simultaneously working on two ayahs probably sometimes, because I took the information from the passports, but then traced them through multiple senses, traced them through multiple ship passages and and created a journey history of those ayahs. Like there was an ayah who went from India to Britain, gets transferred to a relative, goes to Hawaii, then goes to Hong Kong, and then goes back to India. So she was circumventing the whole... um, the whole globe, right? Um, so, so that was a, and that was remarkable in its in its own right. And I didn't want to silence those histories, those faces, those names. Um, so that was on a personal level. I wanted that to be there in this project. On a more scholarly level, I have gone to several archives, over 10 archives for this project and also the previous project. And with every archive, I spend so much time trying to understand what is there, what is the mechanics of the archives. And every time I do that, I 
am also, you know, doing that research alongside other historians who are lucky because they are they are dealing with um, histories sometimes which are easily neatly packaged um, in, in certain subfields of history, as we know. But for women's history, it becomes, and especially migrant histories, they are so scattered that we are constantly reinventing the wheel right? Every time we walk into an archive. And I wanted to stop that. I wanted to do my best as a scholar, as a researcher, to make resources available for scholars who are going to walk this path after me, um, this this topic after me, right? Um, So that they don't have to reinvent the wheel and they can go to this, look at this, and then work their way uh, through other sources, and that way they are saving time, and also their their research becomes accessible instead of probably ten archives. They probably will have to go to eight archives or seven archives, right? Um, and and that's that's a duty that I saw uh, worthwhile for me to perform as a historian um, and as a woman of color and as a South Asian. Uh, migrant woman, uh, a daughter of South Asian migrants, right? Um, So uh, it also was a duty that I saw towards uh, scholars who are in lesser privileged institutions who cannot make that journey. Because, you know, when we are traveling across the globe to find these archives, um, and create these his write these histories, it requires a lot of resource um, and a lot of countries, a lot of societies, a lot of scholars don't necessarily have that resource. But that shouldn't stop them from doing these kinds of histories. So if I could create any um, archive within my book to make that accessible to them, so that they can use it in their teaching, in their research, uh, I thought that would be a way of me doing my duty as a historian um, in this space and with this material. So so those are the two professional and personal reasons why I included and, and created an archive, um, crafted an archive within my book. No, and I think it's a fantastic endeavor, and it also showcases the ways in which historical and moral responsibilities um, also come come to play in our work. And I think that's great. Um, I want to also perhaps ask you to reflect a bit on, I suppose, um, recent trends towards skepticism toward recuperation and recovery in the archive. Um, And when I say skepticism, I don't mean outright um, abandonment of this ideal, because it's still something that many historians do. But uh, certainly, lots of um, um, questions have been raised about the extent to which subjects can be recuperated. And part of what I think this archive is doing is just so absolutely, well, they can be, and actually, it's our responsibility to recuperate them to the extent that is possible. Um, So, I mean, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that particular um, uh, debate with with respect to uh, recuperation and recovery in the archive. Um, But, you know, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to see if you had thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I... I respect and accept that skepticism because these are archives made by people in power. These are archives where um, the voices of 
these women, these subjects do not always come out in their own words, right? So, so that skepticism is valid. But if you, if one over relies on that skepticism, then it paralyzes you from doing the history uh, and kind of uh, makes these subjects, these these um, actors of history even more silenced. Because if you shy away from using these archives, um, then you don't give them a chance, give those stories a chance to come forth. Um, and it also, like... a can be read in another way, right? Their presence in those archives is their resilience, is their resistance, right? So um, it shows that even after the best efforts of the colonial masters or those who made those archives, they were not successful in erasing these women, right? And if we continue with that skeptic uh constant skepticism without giving these histories a chance, then we privilege that narrative which gives more power to those who created the archive. Um, So I think a fair amount, a fair balance of skepticism and responsibility um, is the only way forward for historians who who do the histories that, you know, uh, we do. And actually, what you're saying reminds me of this really apt Latamani quote, which I will probably misquote, but it's something like we can question colonial discourse or interrogate it without conceding to it what it did not achieve. It did not achieve the erasure of women. And I think that's really apt here. Um, let me, I guess, as we're sort of talking about this, this broader stakes question, let me ask you a bit about the relationship between the book and British history, because this is um, a history of Indian traveling ayahs in Britain. Um, You dedicate the book to the brave ayahs and their enduring spirits. Uh, I really like that. Uh, But I want to ask you how you think British history should be treating that endurance of colonial subjects, of colonial migrants in Britain, and how it has not owned this history to the extent that it should be owning this history as British history. Yeah, so uh, the Ayas histories shows us the history of belonging and also unbelonging at the same time in British history, right? Um, it, it shows the anxieties, the helplessness of the empire um, and their reliance on these women, but also a constant effort to not allow us to get the whole story of these ayahs. However, you know, we have dolls, ayah figures, dolls, postcards, scrapbooks um, in the archives, which basically shows that even in their best efforts um, in pop culture, you know, loosely using that term, the ayahs were there constantly as an object, as an emotion, as a, a, a service in the empire home, right? Um, and in that way, it clearly shows that the, the South Asian history or South Asian migrants history, not just ayahs, but any other migrant South Asian history of that time period, is as much South Asian history as it is British history, 
And with the whole focus on BAME-focused uh, kind of initiatives to make South Asian history uh, more prominent in high schools and th- changing the curriculums, I think this is timely uh, uh, to kind of push that effort. And in fact, currently I am working with um, several archives and museums to basically host and create lesson plans for high school um, students to come and tour uh, so that they, even if it is not in the mainstream curriculum, they are still exposed to this history, which is as much their history as it is um, of, of people, you know, far away or, or even, you know, South Asian children who are in Britain. It is as much their history as it is of their ancestors and other communities living um, side by side in Britain. That's, that's really um, a helpful way to look at it. And I was thinking we've chatted about this book in relation to women's history, gender history, British history, the history of the British Empire. Perhaps we can end with South Asian history. You start the book with these um, advertisements for for Ayas in, um, in Bangla, in, in, in Calcutta. Um, and we know that so many caregiving women traveled from South Asia to, to all parts of the world to continue the occupation of caregiving, whether it's Sri Lankan women traveling to Lebanon, uh, South Indian women traveling to Saudi Arabia, um, and, and, and so on. And a lot of these stories that you talk about will also resonate with those women today in, in relation to rights, in relation to, you know, fair wages, um, the ability co- to control your patterns of mobility and so on. And and so I wonder, is there sort of a presentist bent to this history as well um, that, that, that can be helpful for us? Yeah, and especially, uh, you know, v- without the past, we are prisoners of the present. Um, in fact, when I started this project, there were a lot of other scholars, um, not historians, of course, but um, other scholars from other fields who were telling me, oh, this story actually looks like an Indonesian's, Indonesian or Filipino caregiver's story of today, right? Um, and it allows us to kind of show how certain histories have, you know, continued and um, have not really changed that much, right? Um, they are still getting abandoned sometimes. They are still getting... So those kind of struggles. And it, it allows us to see that migrant caregiving as an industry uh, needs a lot of work, right? And needs a lot of um, uh, attention. But it also allows us to see these histories that were happening in everyday spaces that often kind of get ignored um, in South Asia and in larger spaces. So um, in the presentist kind of uh, moment, um, I am actually very excited because I'm partnering with uh, the Museum of Home to set up an exhibition, um, a period room exhibition about these traveling ayahs. And in fact, um, on 28th of October um, this year, I have an event with them where I'm not only uh, giving a talk about the ayahs, but also curating that room with the curators um, of the uh, museum. And also we are doing recipes from the past, cook the past uh, through the recipes of the ayahs. So it's kind of an embodied experience for people um, to to experience um, in that moment, um, not only in the visuals, in the 
stories of the ayahs, but also consume what the ayahs would have um, allowed uh, their charges to consume, right? Um, or given they're not allowed, but given their charges to consume. Um, and, and in many ways, it allows a full immersion of us into uh, the histories of these women and see how important these histories were in various kinds, in sensory histories, in emotional histories, in physical experiences, uh, being in different spaces and different times. Yeah. That, that's wonderful to hear. And I'll actually have the details of that exhibition in the accompanying blog post to this, to this podcast. I want to thank Aruna Madatta for joining us and talking about her fantastic new book, Waiting on Empire. It's available as a hardcover and as an ebook via Oxford University Press. Um, thank you, Arunama. And um, hopefully our listeners learned a lot from this conversation. Thank you, Zoya. It has been an honor.